Hi, Anna. You look wonderful. Yes. How did you? Oh, uh, I'm doing kind of the scruffy beard thing these days. Oh yes, it's very popular. <laughs> Which I couldn't do in my TV news days. I know. There's Nor could I. I do the earring. You can do in your TV news days. You see my earring? <gasps> oh my god, that's awesome. Do you know when I got that? No, the day after you quit? <laughs> no, like within 45 minutes of leaving the office. Jill, my wife, picked me up when we had the good, oh, and I was all done with the newscast and the little goodbye thing in the newsroom. Oh my gosh. And we went straight to the, what is it, the Padoga, Pagoda Hut or something like that. Yeah. And I got my, I got my little diamond earring. That is hilarious. And, and people... <laughs> People ask me about it now, and, and I just say it's a reminder to me that I did my 31 years in TV where they wouldn't let me have an earring, and now I can have it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. I love, uh, it. I love it. Well, I'm, I'm so happy to be talking with you because, look, most people I just sit down and I kind of chat from memory things. Yeah. Look at all the list of things I wanted to ask you about. <laughs> I was really going to say, I'm kind of nervous. I don't like being on this end of things. I'm used to being the person asking the questions. I do nope. not like being the one answering them. <laughs> oh, um, hey, so let's start with, uh, tell me, I know a little bit, but tell us about the expert show that you've been doing for a couple of years now, right? Yeah, um, it's been so much fun. Um, I just realized toward the end of my tr traditional news career, that one of the things I really loved was meeting people who were experts in their fields. Like you would meet a brilliant scientist or this genius engineer in the course of doing a daily story or even like a long form investigative piece. And I always found myself wanting to be able to share more of what that expert had in their head. Mm -hmm. Like they devoted their entire life to, you know, becoming the expert in, in said field. And um, I always wanted more. So I developed a format in which I could do half hour long videos with experts on a variety of topics. So it's very uh, lifestyle oriented. It's how to live smarter, healthier and happier. I felt like that was something that it was a niche that I wanted to help fill. And it's been a blast. Um, kind of scary, you know, to branch out and do your own thing. But um, I was very fortunate to develop a partnership with the Oregonian to get more eyes on the show. And I feel like, you know, I've spent two years sharing a lot of good information. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like a, a, a Ted talk for the commoners <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Be, because it is really useful stuff. And I mean, it's interesting, useful, and, and you have a way of bringing things out of people that's very personable instead of some guy on the stage saying, what if I told you that climate change was X, Y, Z? Like TED Talks are great, but they're one-sided. It's a one-sided conversation. So the other aspect of it that I found really fun and interesting is the ability to engage with a live audience who's watching with you to um, put out the information that here's who I'm interviewing, here's the topic we're talking about even in advance of the show, so that if people have questions, they can either post them or private message them to me. Um, I really like that it's more of a dialogue and yeah. not a unilateral conversation with an expert. And it happens uh, on Oregon Live's website. Uh, at, at, it's a live specific time, right? It's not just like my podcast is taped. You can listen to it anytime you want, right? Yeah, it's Mondays at 7 p.m., but you can always go back and watch the replays if you don't you know, catch yeah. the actual live broadcast too. Like I was in live TV for almost two decades. So um, I, I enjoy the energy of doing something live. You know, it, yeah. there's a different level of when you know it's live. I don't, I can't really explain it that well. Well, well, congratulations on finding that niche. And th that's very, you know, a very useful niche for people and beginning, uh, being able to continue uh, helping the community with the information you're getting out there. Uh, you know, I think all of us when we're in TV news are a little afraid of what am I going to do next? And everybody lands on their feet. And, uh, and you certainly did with the expert show, I think. Well, I, I feel fortunate. And part of it for me is, you know, I became a mom while also being a journalist. 
but I still really value the skills that I built up as a journalist. Like I devoted, you know, I knew I wanted to be a journalist from the time that I was nine years old. So um, it felt weird that I would have to just stop using journalism skills and stop using interviewing skills once I was no longer working full time. Mm -hmm. So um, I think a lot of people can relate to, you know, different stages in their life where they still want to continue utilizing and building the skills that they, you know, were using prior to becoming a parent or whatever milestone event, you know, was a turning point in their life. So what was that milestone event at the age of nine? (laughs) You know what's so funny? Um, I grew up, uh, I didn't know until I was older that English was my second language until I watched a recording of myself on Ramblin' Rod when I was five years old and I was speaking in broken English. <laughs> I didn't realize I had a Chinese accent. I was <laughs> in Taiwan and I emigrated to the US with my family when I was two. So here I was on Ramblin' Rod trying to tell him what school I go to. <laughs> and I- and let me just say that Rod Anders, as great as he was as a TV host for kids, was not a linguistic master. <laughs> he had a really good time with it, which, Looking back is hilarious because he was like, wait, what school do you go to? And he couldn't quite understand what I was saying. So I realized that I grew up learning English, watching Three's Company and Peter Jennings. So, uh, you know. Two different, that- two different ends of the spectrum. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, the world news was always a part of my life growing up. It was important to me. I was probably watching way too serious content at too young of an age. But I just admired, um, you know, ABC World News, and eventually that became a love for Barbara Walters and Hugh Downs in 2020. And um, I don't know, I I was interviewed uh, by Jeff Gianola when I was nine because I was a Rose Festival princess for Park Rose, and he was the MC for the Queen Coronation. <laughs> so um, I remember talking to him and meeting him and thinking that seemed like a really cool job. And then later on in life, I um, had the good fortune of being interviewed by Paul Lindman when I was in high school and expressed to him an interest in TV news. And he was kind enough to invite me down to K2 for a job shadow. And I watched a newscast. Um, with You're hooked then. Memory, yeah. And I was hooked. I mean, yeah. I, I was first just starstruck at the whole idea that this is how TV news is made. And then as I, you know, wrote for the school newspaper in Park Rose and then went on into college to study journalism, I really developed this love for storytelling, but not just storytelling with words, but with pictures and sound. Like the whole idea of it was really exciting to me and it still excites me, you know. So uh, were you lucky enough? I know that, you know, you worked for an ABC affiliate and I know that Peter Jennings came to town once or twice. Were you uh, lucky enough to uh, to be able to interact with him when he came to K2 Studios? You know, that's funny. It always happened when I was away on vacation. No! So I always heard the stories, but I never actually got to meet him in person. That's probably a good thing instead of walking up. I watched you when I was nine years old and I always wanted to be a reporter and he probably wouldn't have cared at all. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, people say that to me sometimes now. Oh, I remember watching you when I was 10 years old. I was like, thanks. Yeah, thank you, kind of, yeah. Uh, well, I, you know, I'm I'm similar. I mean, I think uh, my interest was first in sports reporting and being a baseball play-by-play guy because, you know, my dad watched a lot of sports at home, but we watched the evening news either at the dinner table or that. And, you know, so I was exposed that way as well uh, to storytelling and the importance of news. And from pretty early on, like I said, I wanted to start in sports, but I ended up in news as well. So that exposure early on had a deep impact on on both of us. Yeah. It's, it's really, I feel really fortunate to have gone on and worked in the industry that I loved so much and to have met the people that I met on the yeah. job, both in the field, but also the incredible camaraderie that comes with being in a newsroom and working with photographers and the whole team of producers and editors that it takes behind the scenes to get a newscast on the air in a matter that is presentable. Yeah. And 
but, and it, you mentioned the you know the people you meet and you know we we always get to do stories and they're always interesting but one of the benefits of this job is where you get to go behind the scenes and who you get to talk to and you know maybe an eighth of that may make it on the air but uh, all the things you learn or are exposed to on a day-to-day -day basis is just fascinating I, fascinating I, than standing in front of a camera yeah and they're fascinating in like great ways and sometimes horrible ways mm -hmm. like you meet people on the most extraordinary day of their life and but it can be extraordinary in a positive way and it could be extraordinarily tragic so in that way i feel like it is um a, a, a privilege to be with them um, in those circumstances and it's a job that requires a lot of compassion and understanding and um, just to kind of remember that yes you're there to do a job but you're also human and you're dealing yeah. with another human being you're not just dealing with somebody who you want to get a sound bite out of like i think that's um always what was in my head when i encountered people in various circumstances yeah interesting you mentioned that because you know the best day the most exciting day of somebody's life you may be there and also in you know the most tragic i have a friend whose uh son uh died in a military accident and you know I, i'd gotten the you know we found out about it in the newsroom and i gotten a call from a friend of the friend and and i ended up talking to them on the phone and coming out do an interview with these family friends of mine about their son they had lost um and you know i had this uh obviously i had the contact to be able to interview them but i also felt some kind of value in being the one to interview them so i could kind of walk them through it i mean i think it was more comforting for them that i was there to help tell this story that they were going to have to tell that they didn't want to um, it was a horrible thing to go through, but at the same time, I, I felt uh, some value in being the one to be there with them. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, that can even happen with strangers. Like the yes. story that comes to mind is David Heller, the Central Catholic high school player who, unbeknownst to all of us, had a heart condition, uh, an enlarged heart, and went home from a um, practice or a game. And... Um, went to sleep that night and never woke up. This was right around Thanksgiving. And, you know, you know how the news happens. You get a press release about someone dying and you get a name and then it's somebody's job to make that phone call or to go knock on a door of someone, a family that has just lost their loved one. And it's the call that you never want to make as a reporter, but sometimes you have to make it because you don't know what the outcome is going to be. And it's tricky because people have a hard time understanding that, of course, you want to respect people's privacy, but in some circumstances, you meet a family like the Hellers, who on the other end of the phone said, yeah, come on out to our house. We want you to know about David. We want you to know how he died. They recognized within days of his death that it was a public service to talk about how he died in case there were other student athletes out there with undiagnosed heart conditions. Like his mom was a nurse and didn't even know mm -hmm. that he had this going on because he had been more or less asymptomatic up until his death. And so it was remarkable to go out to their home in Scapoos within days after he died, have them tell me the full story of what had happened, have them open their hearts to me and tell me about this amazing kid that I wish I had known. And then to watch them uh, take that tragedy and develop a nonprofit <laughs> that now helps pay for defibrillators to go into high schools and on road trips with teens. And they did cardiac screenings and they found so many abnormalities in student athletes and likely saved dozens more lives as a result of what happened to their son. So in that circumstance, you are, you know, fortunate it's not how you want to meet people, but you can work together to help make something beautiful come out of something that truly is tragic. And if you don't make that phone call or you don't make that uncomfortable knock on the door, it may never happen. But then if you are lucky enough to be a skilled reporter that can go there and make that experience for them comfortable enough that they can move on, then again, it's a horrible place to be 
but you can do so much good if you do it right. And, and there's a lot of ways to do it wrong. Oh gosh, yes. <laughs> it's a weird, it's really hard to explain to people who haven't experienced it, but there can be an odd catharsis in talking to somebody you've never met about the loved one that you just lost, you know, in the way that you want them to be remembered. Because there is, I guess in some small way, it can be empowering to say, this is how I want this person who was special to be, to be remembered. I want the world to know, you know, why this person was incredible. And so I do feel very uh, blessed to have been there and had those conversations with people who wanted to have them. Uh, did you, uh, you did an internship at K2 or had some kind of fellowship, didn't you, when you were at, when you were at Pepperdine, I think, when you were in college? Yeah, so um, I was at Pepperdine and I first interned at KBC in LA. Um, so I got to see what <laughs> number two market newsroom looks like. It was crazy, nuts, just nuts. I was like answering the assignment desk, phone, and <laughs> watching the assignment manager go through the list of murders from the night before to decide which one to cover, like, I, I don't how you make that decision, which murder had something a little odd about it. It's just, it was very eye-opening. Um, and then the summer of my junior year, I came back and did an internship at K2 um, that had a scholarship attached to it. So it was actually a paid internship. Awesome. Awesome. And then did you come right out of college to K2 after that? I mean, I'm sure you impressed the folks at K2, right? You know, what's funny is I had a job lined up in Midland, Texas. That's Dang where it. I was going to go take my first job as a news reporter out of college, Midland, Texas. And uh, oh, I remember Mindy Davis at K2, who was the human resources specialist, calling me and saying, hey, you know, I think we're going to make up a position for you. We're going to call you reporter trainee. We've oh, never cool. done this before. That's how I got hired. That's how I got hired. I was hired on kind of an interim six-month basis to see if I could be ready to go on air in six months. Uh, Gary Walker, who was the interim news director at the time, would be reviewing my footage, my live shots, or my, you know, stand-ups to see if I was not too green to go on air. And um, yeah, they were trying something new because by the end of my internship at K2, the good part about it was that it was so loosely structured that by the end, I was going out with photographers on my own, yeah. doing all the interviews, writing the packages, and then just handing the package to an anchor to voice. And then mm -hmm. I had that story for myself, for my own reel. Yeah. So um, I was pretty comfortable with that, um, with the help of a lot of people who taught me how to write well and, you know, not make a fool of myself, like uh, Matt Griffin and <laughs> Sam and April Thomas, all these folks who would look over my scripts and Gary Walker, obviously, who would, you know, um, help me realize what a broadcast script actually should look and sound like. And then, um, yeah, it was only about, I think three to four months into that six month reporter trainee period that there was um, a crash on the Ross Island Bridge. It was a Friday afternoon. There was no one in the newsroom. Everybody was out on assignment already. And they needed someone to go live in Jet Ranger 2 to talk about the crash at the top of the show. Lead story, live, and you're in a helicopter. <laughs> Calm down, no less. <laughs> so I was like, Gary, Gary, come on, let me do it. What's the worst that can happen? Honestly, come on, just take a chance, you know. <laughs> Not all blotchy like Gary does. And he finally was like, fine, just, just go do it. Don't embarrass us. I don't embarrass this. <laughs> and uh, my eyes are as big as deer in headlights. I start to hyperventilate because I'm so nervous. My throat chokes up. I can't. I can't get any words out. And um, I realize we're flying over the crash, and I'm I'm describing in detail the crash itself and what had happened. I don't think it was a fatal. And then I just remember Gary getting in my ear on the headset going, talk about the traffic around the crash. The story is not the crash itself. The story is how it is impacting rush hour traffic at five o'clock in the afternoon. And I was like, oh, and the traffic all around was 
There you go. Well, when I started at KGW, or it's probably still now, it was an after union shop. I don't know, K2 wasn't when we were there together, but there was an actual position in the contract called reporter trainee where, where they could hire somebody with less than two years experience, pay them dirt, yeah. uh, and uh, and could do that for a year. So I was I was that for a year. I mean, I, I got paid nothing for my first year there. And then after that, you were moved up in the contract to a regular reporter's salary. Oh, I so, see. I love that. Okay. Yeah. So very similar beginnings. Although yes. a little more structured. But, than- I, but I, I was on the air from point one. I mean, I, I, that, that was an on the air position. It was not like, like a tryout. It was just a position where they could uh, not pay somebody a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was fortunate. I mean, I... I will always be grateful to Mark Cass and Rhonda Shelby um, and Gary for advocating for me um, to even have that opportunity because I, I knew even back then how precious it was yeah. to you know, start in a market like Portland as green as I was. Yeah, but the you know the cream comes to the top. They 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 find people that know what they're doing, and you get them some good training. You have you work with good people, and uh, and you can you can make an advancement in your case. And I think in my case as well, where we could get uh, up to the right caliber that we, as you said, not embarrassing them, <laughs> don't embarrass us. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, the not so glamorous portions of that job, I was just taking every shift that nobody else wanted to work. So I was working overnights, I was writing, I was sitting with James Wilms, because I guess on the weekends, overnights, they were reducing costs by not running the heater. So James and I would be sitting there, like, running up in parkas, you know, preparing the morning newscast on the weekends. Budget um, cuts. So, you know, but that, that was just, that was me paying my dues and trying to get my foot in the door and, you know, just being present at the station as much as possible. That's interesting, Anna, because uh, I've done maybe 30 or 35 of these podcast interviews with a lot of people who have been very successful. And, you know, Kathy Smith, Paul Lindman, Jack McGowan, all these people who have been superstars in this this market, it's all the same story. <laughs> I'll do anything. I'll work any shift. I'll do whatever I can, and I'll show you that I can do the job. So you're, you're certainly uh, fit into that category of people that work their butts off to get where they were. Um, so you became an, an outstanding investigative reporter, and that's, uh, that's, I mean, there are a lot of news reporters, but to be an investigative reporter, uh, to be trusted with those kind of stories uh, and work is, is really uh, important in a newsroom. Uh, how did you get to that point? What, how, did you, how did you learn to be an investigative reporter? I don't know that there was any formal process to it. I just know that um, I would do stories like daily turn stories that I felt like needed more coverage. You know, like I was limited by the minute and a half that I had to tell that story. And I was struggling to try and jam more information in. And I would always feel like there were certain stories that really warranted more digging. Like, you know, you would come across things in the course of doing a day turn story that were like, that doesn't seem right. Like what's going on there? Or you would do an interview with somebody who would surprise you because you would ask a a normal question and suddenly they would be obfuscating and they would be like getting dodgy or doing a no comment. And it was always a red flag. It was like, wait, why, why, why are you being all weird about this? So it was just kind of probably born more from my natural curiosity to be annoying and a little bit of a gadfly and try to dig a little more to figure out what was really going on. And then as I learned more about investigative reporting and, you know, the beauty of documents and what those can reveal and um, just developing sources, like developing people who um, are in positions of power, who come to trust you and want to tell you things that are happening within an entity that are wrong and unjust. um, I really it furthered my love for journalism because I was like, well, this is, this is what we're meant to do as journalists. We're supposed to hold the powerful accountable. We're supposed to give, you know, a voice to the voiceless. And it really um, just, I, I was very motivated, you know, by that aspect of the job and being able to um, affect lives and change laws and, you know, um, help right wrongs in a big way. Like, I don't know. There was something innate in me that just 
had a passion for that. So, so pick one out. Uh, I know you did a lot, but give me the anatomy of a really good story about how you found it from the source, what you checked, what you found, you know, as far as documents and, 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 and from A to B to where, you know, oftentimes those stories then have to go before management and lawyers to make sure that we got it right. Uh, tell me a story uh, that really made a difference that you, you're proud of. Um, you know, I, I was always drawn to stories that involved children for whatever reason. And um, a story that I found really compelling is um, the story of Jordan Clark. So he was a little boy who uh, went to a local hospital. Um, he had a congenital heart defect, but other than that, he was actually normal physically and mentally. So he went as an infant to get um, his heart defect repaired. But in recovery, as an infant, his breathing tube slipped out of place. So he lost oxygen to his brain for, um, I think, 12 minutes. And so it was life-changing for him. Um, you know, here was a boy that um, was now going to have a shortened life because of his situation, who could no longer be verbal. And um, the thing that, you know, medical mistakes occur but this particular situation um, was really difficult for that family and others like them because the entity they went to actually had a $200,000 cap on liability damages. So if something catastrophic happened to you while you were a patient at this hospital, because they had it essentially written into law, that you could only sue them for $200,000. I mean, Jordan Clark's medical costs over his lifetime would be $11 million, even a shortened lifespan. And so what you have is families who have terrible things happen to them, who don't know that the short cap existed, but also who couldn't get any medical malpractice attorney to want to represent them in a case against this hospital. Because there was nothing to make any money for the attorneys at the $200,000 cap or whatever it was, right? It's not even, in these days, it's not even enough to bring the case because you have to pay the expert witnesses to testify as well. Hmm. And so they were really in a bind. And, and I was finding that there were other people in that situation. And so as I started to talk with Jordan Clark and his family and realized that this was um, a far-reaching issue, um, I just learned a lot more about it. I was able to follow the case. They did wind up, you know, filing suit and their case went all the way to the Oregon Supreme Court and that tort cap was eventually overturned. Right. And the important part of that litigation was also that the hospital had to notify patients when they were coming in for treatment that this tort cap exists. Um, this particular entity is a public-private entity, so they get state funding, um, but they also operate in many senses like a private corporation. It's one of the only entities in the state that is considered a public corporation. It's in a very interesting category. Mm -hmm. And so I just, I really took value in um, bringing light to that situation and covering it through and... Um, working with this family because they knew that by continuing through the process, it wasn't really just for them. It was going to be for a lot of other patients down the line who would have things happen to them. Yeah, that's a great way to have a, a strong effect on our community in the future. And the story, you know, it's a great story for the day and we can tease it and we can headline it and all that kind of stuff, but it has an impact the correct impact going forward. And that, I mean, that's the essence of what you want to do as a journalist. Very much so. Yeah. Uh, and that impact can come in a lot of different forms. Like one of my, uh, one of the things I'm most proud of is a series that I did for a year or so um, where I featured a different foster kid each month. And sometimes it wasn't one kid. Sometimes it was five siblings <laughs> who were all looking to be adopted. And it was uh, very fulfilling to be able to tell this kid's story 
in a pretty substantive way about saying, well, this is who this kid is, this is what they're about. Is there anyone out there who wants to give them a forever family? And, and I'm guessing most of them or all of them did find a family? Most of them did. So now, <laughs> isn't that funny? Is you got these people living their lives out there and you know, not thinking about child X that's sitting there needing a home, but you get the story in front of them told well, adoption or you know adoption happens people find families so you know again the power of storytelling if the story doesn't get told it doesn't happen it's true i mean one of the one of the kids was a 17 year old girl she was on her way out of the system and she was just going to be kind of cast into the wind and as a 17 year old she was adopted by a couple who saw the story in texas nice and that's beautiful um Let's see, uh, I did want to ask you about, you know, probably the biggest story of that time period was the Ward Weaver, Amanda Gaddis, Ashley Pond story that overtook us all for, you know, a couple of months. I, I know you were really um, uh, involved in covering that. And unfortunately, you were face to face with that guy a few times. Huh. Weren't you? A, a number of times. <laughs> As good as you feel about some of the other great impacts you've had with your stories, that's got to be one that, that uh, you kind of cringe being around a man that took the lives of two girls. Yeah. Um, I, it definitely haunts me now because I think about what he did and what happened to those girls and the fact that I had the opportunity to meet Miranda Gaddis um, before she disappeared because I actually interviewed her at the school bus stop after Ashley Pond disappeared. So uh, I had this conversation with Miranda about how strange it was that her friend and classmate was gone and how nervous it made her and how scary it was. And so then when the news came out two months later in March that she had disappeared, I, um, I couldn't believe it. I saw her picture and I said, I, I talked to that girl yeah, ouch. Had the raw footage. And so that aspect of it, working with the families um, over uh, an eight month time period until he was finally arrested um, was very emotional. Um, but in the, in the same way that I felt like I was playing a part and serving a role, I, I don't regret at all continuing to put pressure on the Weaver family to try and figure out what was going on. I don't regret, you know, um, interviewing him. Like the story, it's kind of crazy because we initially heard about him via an email, an anonymous email that came into the newsroom that said, you really should look into the bushy haired neighbor at the top of the hill in Oregon City on Beaver Creek there because the girls lived in Newell Creek apartments down the hill and I was like bushy haired neighbor and at this time our news director had said I want you to be the expert on this case I want you to do a story about the missing girls every day until there's resolution <laughs> so um, I remember taking the email and going after work one day and driving out to Oregon City in my green Honda Civic and looking around and realizing there's only one house at the top of the hill knocking on the door and having the conversation <laughs> with Ward Weaver about why are we getting emails about you? <laughs> you do that without a camera? Just by myself. Oh, my Anna. <laughs> In retrospect, I would like to scold you for doing that, but. <laughs> um, yeah. And so <laughs> it's kind of crazy now thinking back, but. Uh, he just said, well, yeah, he went on about how he had flunked the polygraph test, and that's why everybody was saying he was the main suspect, but I should really come back and get the full story. I was like, okay, what time do you want to talk with a camera? And so we made an arrangement to talk the next morning at seven in the morning before he went to his job uh, in the shipping department at some, you know, industrial place. And so that's when I went back out with a photographer the next morning to do the interview with him. And... Uh, it was, uh, it's kind of crazy to think back now and think like, wow, we were sitting in his house. He knew the truth. 
he thought he was smarter than everybody and could tell a story that we would all believe. He walked me over this concrete slab where he had already buried Ashley Fine. He stood in front of this stand-up freezer, which we later learned contained Miranda Gaddis's body at some point. And so he just was fully taunting us. Um, so yeah, obviously that aspect of it is very sad and eerie. Um, but again, I'm glad that we continue to put pressure on him because ultimately, you know, I don't know really exactly what role we played ultimately in his arrest, and, but I have to think it, it mattered some. Uh, I was at uh, KGW during that time. And I remember, uh, I believe you were either asked or you did, did you speak at their memorial service? Yeah. Uh, and I remember us talking about whether or not that was a good idea, like it mattered to us. I mean, what, what was involved in your decision as a journalist to speak at, uh, at that service? I think the hardest part for me was that the families had asked me to speak at the service, the families of the girls. Yeah. And I didn't really want to, to be honest, because I, I didn't want to be part of the story. And I think by speaking at the service, I was like becoming part of the story that way. So um, I was young. Um, I got a lot of help from the managers at K2 and figuring out what to say. They really supported the idea of me speaking at the service. And then there was part of me that felt inclined to do it because the families were the ones asking me to do it. Yes. So it was really hard. Like, I'm not sure that I would go back and make the same decision again. Um, the, the blowback was a little rough for a young journalist. I was only 23, maybe 22, 23. And I remember there being a pretty critical column written about me like in the LA Times or something. And I was, I was devastated, you know, that here I was being criticized as the journalist who broke the golden rule when really the basis of all that for me was my heart for yeah. families and what they had gone through. And, um, you know, I, I was encouraged by the community itself because I got a lot of like hundreds of emails and letters from people who were thanking me for being compassionate and not being this reporter that was just kind of like reporting on this story from another planet. Um, but yeah, it was a, it was an interesting lesson to learn at such a young age. <laughs> yeah. And, and I don't know what the right or wrong answer is there. And you talked about the different things that you're weighing on there. Uh, but going through that helps you develop uh, a, a thick skin, but B, you know, just a, a process by which to make future decisions involved in that. And, you know, by virtue of your career, all, most of the decisions you made about how to be a strong journalist were really good ones. I can, I can say for a fact. Um, yeah, it was a tough one. I mean, even on the day that like the bodies were found, like it was a really hot 90 degree day in oh. like, August. We'd been out there for uh, the better part of like 48 hours because the fences had gone up on the property. The FBI had moved in and they were searching for the bodies and none of us really knew for sure what they were going to find and if they were going to find anything. And here we'd gone for eight months with sort of this ambiguity of, well, maybe there's still a chance that the girls are still alive and this is all a big misunderstanding somehow, you know? But when the medical examiner's van pulled up, that's when I knew as a journalist that they were not coming home. And I remember breaking down in part because of exhaustion and heat and, um, you know, but also because this was really a culmination of eight months of wondering. And um, I was embarrassed that I cried on camera. <laughs> I thought mm -hmm. that was the end of my job because I had always been trained in journalism school. You stay objective, you know, you don't, you're not supposed to show your feelings. But I couldn't help it, it was involuntary. And, um, and that was another instance where I just thought, gosh, this is it, I'm not gonna work again. But um, I, I was, again, very encouraged by people who wrote in and called in and said, hey, you know, thanks for being a reporter who has a heart. Yeah. Uh, 
I was out there that day too. Now I hadn't covered the story uh, the way that, that you had. Uh, Cause uh, let's see, I think I was anchoring the morning news, but I was working a weekend shift that at that time. And we were on the air from like nine in the morning until six o'clock in the afternoon. It was like snow coverage, but it was about the deaths of two girls because there was that scene with the fences and there were people walking by and leaving mementos. And, and I mean, it was, it was live coverage of, of just that for eight or nine hours and interviewing, you know, people that had just come to see it and curiosity, you know, cause there was nobody from the FBI. Very rarely was somebody from the FBI coming out and telling us what was going on. Yeah. We were just sitting there and I, I was exhausted too at the end of the day. I just, I just kind of, I just collapsed. I had nothing left to give because yeah. I'd interviewed so many people. I wasn't the only one, you know, we had like, you know, three or four crews out there and reporters and they would just bounce from one to the other, all doing the same thing, just talking about this fence and these flowers and these people. Uh, and it, it was emotionally just incredibly draining. <laughs> it was, and we, you know, Casey went on air, we broke in on that Friday night at 9.45. We continued broadcasting until about one in the morning. Uh, so we broke in as the fences were going up on the property because we got a tip that that was happening. And then the next morning uh, we broke from coverage and we started the morning coverage early in the morning, five or 6 a.m. and continued all the way through until midnight that next day. Yeah. And then the next morning, same thing, early in the morning until well after 11 p.m. at night. So yeah, it was um, a lot of grief collectively that we were all a part of, you know? None of us really knew these girls. A few of us really knew these girls and the lives that they had even prior to being kidnapped and murdered. But for whatever reason, we felt like we knew them. They were yeah. part of our community. And we were invested. We were. Yeah. Uh, so now I'm really, I'm excited to say this because now I'm a podcaster and I listen to all these podcasts where they're interviewing people, uh, and they always say, you got a hard out, you know, cause the, cause the celebrity has to go do something else. So what, what is your hard out today? Cause I know you got a radio show to join. <laughs> my hard out today is that, yes, I go join my husband, John on the radio, which I don't know how this even happened, but this was like start of the pandemic. He started doing the radio show from home. So I would just pop in occasionally. And now and, it's a regular bit, right? Oh, it's a regular bit. I'm somehow on a sports radio show. And I know like this much about sports and it's through osmosis. <laughs> oh, well, see, the, the cool thing about a, a good radio sports talk show is when it's not about sports. And I, and I think, you know, uh, and I know John's is a great show and he does some great interviews, but it's the other stuff that happens that interests me. And I think the interaction between husband and wife and, and, and again, intelligent, really strong sports journalist husband and intelligent, really strong, compassionate journalist wife, Anna, I, I've heard it a few times and I, I, it, it makes a much better sports show than worrying about how many points Damien scored the night before. <laughs> we're on there arguing about like parenting strategies or you know how much gear we need to go on this camping trip that John doesn't really want to go on so, uh, yeah I mean at the very least you know while we've been in this pandemic I hope that at two o'clock every day there are some people that we can bring a smile to their face and be entertained and be like okay yeah, yeah we have a lot of the same issues that we have in our family as well so I want to know how this uh, intrepid investigative journalist meets uh, a sports columnist. Where did where did this happen? Through <laughs> <laughs> uh, work, I was um, I think I had to do a story about the Blazers, and he had some facts about the the arena and the team and what they were worth that it was one of those days where you come into work and they say, hey, so-and-so wrote this story in the Oregonian, you need to do a follow-up on that story, which as you know, I hate, hate that. Oh. We really hate having to call a print journalist to get help on something. There's just a weird like line of demarcation that we like to try and maintain sometimes. 
So, um, but this figure that he had for the value of the team and the team, the, the arena, it was nowhere else. It wasn't in Forbes. It wasn't really anywhere. So, but it was a key part of the story if I was going to have to do the reporting on it. So I think I got his number from Katie Brown and called him and said, hey, I really hate to bother you, but can I get your help on this? I don't know where you got this number, but I need to either quote you or maybe you can let me know where you got it. And so, and that was just a conversation that began and really has never ended. <laughs> and energy there that um, was mutual. And um, I, I really, that's an aspect of our relationship that I love, which is that we do both have this journalism background and this love for writing. And so, you know, when he writes columns, I look them over, I'm his like first copy editor. And um, it's really fun to like engage, you know, with your best friend that way and, and talk about this craft that you both, both love so much. Well, I'm going to get back to that a little bit, but what you talked about the, what we used to call following the newspaper in the newsroom, there was a time at KGW uh, when uh, in that morning, um, I would listen to like KEX or KXL radio coming into the station and, and they were basically reading from Associated Press copy that the Associated Press got from the Oregonian. Yeah. So, so it went Oregonian Morning News, AP copy, radio, and then I'd sit in our meeting and we had a news director that time that we would go over some stuff and then he'd, he'd start going, well, what about X story and Y story and B story? And they were all stories that I had heard on KX radio and I knew right where they came from. Uh, I mean, it, it, sometimes I would even come in and I'd write down three stories that I'd heard on the radio that I knew came from the AP, the Oregonian, and that th this news director would say, we got to start looking into this, like he had, you know, that he had like some inside sources on stories. And it's like, dude, that's like fourth generation. Uh, and, and, you know, it happens all the time and you have to do it sometimes because the newspaper was just much better at that time of breaking strong, strong stories. And it was, but he, he was given this impression that he knew stuff when I know he didn't because I listened to the same <laughs> stuff anyway. Um, uh, I, I, I really love your husband's writing. Uh, I've told him this before, but there's some stuff that he gets that into his column that just amazes me that the things that he knows, the people he talks to, uh, you know, there was one time I talked to him, it was like at Marcus Mariota after a, a loss in the Rose Bowl or something like that. And, and John wrote about some interaction he had with parents outside the locker room that was just, just heartwarming and realistic. And, and the essence of sports has nothing to do with the, the, you know, the total yards in the game. And I was just like, how the hell was John Canzano standing in that right spot you know, it was just amazing. And he does that all the time. Uh, he's just really damn good at it. And I, and, um, uh, and, and then he's had such a great career on the radio. Uh, it just shows what a, uh, a I've, I've come across a lot of sports reporters and, and columnists that were really good, but they would have been squat on the radio. <laughs> But John's excellent. I'm glad you're part of his show. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm really proud of him because, you know, the key in this industry is your ability to evolve. Can you adapt and evolve with the times? And so I'm really proud of how he's evolved from, you know, being a writer, working in print, even doing TV, you know, with KGW and various entities, really. And then this radio show that he's been doing for, you know, so long now. I can't believe it's, you know, it just keeps going. But um, I think the credit that I give to him is he's so much of a relationship person himself. Like, I think that he develops a lot of trust with the sources who work with him. He um, is really good at maintaining those relationships over a long period of time. And frankly, I think his philosophy uh, in covering major events is very similar, you know, to um, there's a famous story about uh, JFK's uh, memorial service. And it was the writer who didn't follow the crowd to look at all the people and all of the pomp and circumstance, but turned and looked in the other direction and saw the man who was digging the grave for JFK and wrote about the man who was digging the grave and what it meant to him um, and how sad he was to be you know, doing that job for this assassinated president. 
And so I think John kind of always has that philosophy as, uh, as journalists should, where it's like, oftentimes the press conference is really not the story where all of the people flood to. That's often not the story. It's look like- Look over there. <laughs> over there, look in the opposite direction. Look at the reaction shot because there's the action and the reaction. And, you know, um, I think he just kind of has developed that skill of mm-hmm. looking for that and finding it. I remember once covering the Portland State volleyball team, uh, they were hosting the national championship and they were going to win. And I had a photographer, you know, shooting the volleyball match. And I said, don't follow the ball, just shoot the Portland State girls. Mm-hmm. Because if you follow the ball and you see that it's in or out, you miss the best part, which is it, which is the reaction. And uh, not that I was any great genius, but, you know, when they you could just you didn't have to see where the ball went. You could tell what happened by watching them. Yeah. I, I did it with a kicker once in a, uh, with a, uh, a game-winning field goal. You know, they were kicking with, with uh, you know, no time left. It was either going to win or lose the game. And I told the fighter, don't follow the ball. You're going to know what happened by following the kicker. So yeah. <laughs> that looked the other way. Because <clears throat> the story is often not where the ball is. You know, it's the reaction. It's the hug that Marcus Mariota gets from his dad outside of a really tough mm-hmm. game. It's those moments. So, uh, so I, had, I had another question about uh, you and your husband. And um, <clears throat> you were Anna Song. Uh, you, had, you have your ethnic background. Which, which in our business can be a value uh, as far as uh, um, diversity. Yeah. Uh, you got married and you changed your name on the air, which many women haven't done. Yeah. Uh, uh, some do, some don't. There's no right or wrong answer. I'm just curious why you went, uh, why, why you decided that that's what you wanted to do on the air. Um, it was a big decision because I'd been known as Anna Song for so long, um, but there was part of me that just, a big part of me that wanted to be married in my whole life. Mm-hmm. Like I just wanted, I didn't want to have like two personalities and two names and try to maintain both. I just wanted to be married. I wanted to be known as Anna Canzano, like 360, and that, but that was just a personal decision for mm-hmm. me. Um, it did take a lot of adjusting. It took about a year of me like accidentally signing out. I would be like, uh, reporter for K2 News, Anis Kanzano. Steve <laughs> 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 Deb, Deb, Deb would be like <laughs> tossing either back to me or, or whatever, or tossing to me. And they would, they would do it too. You know, we all kind of had to like get used to my new last name for a while. Uh, so it was awkward. The best part was when you know, on the weekends, it's a pretty skeleton staff. So I would often like answer the phones. So I answered the phone one weekend after the newscast and this lady called in and said, I'm really confused. You've got a girl working now named Anna Canzano and I swear she looks like she could be the sister of <laughs> used to be Anna Song. <laughs> so I I'm sorry, I'm the same person. I just changed my last name. <laughs> So it's made for interesting conversations along the way. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, I, I I was just curious because again, uh, uh, it, for people that want to go to certain markets, you know, LA being one, uh, or uh, you know, certain ethnicities are of value in the diversity of of a, of a new staff. Uh, and so, I mean, because I know one guy that uh, that worked who was. He was Hispanic, but his name was quite Caucasian. But when he got into the business, he changed his name to Carlos because uh, he wanted to be working in a in L.A. where there's a high um, Hispanic population, and he thought that would help him. Oh wow! Uh, so um, yes, and that's people who uh, that's interesting that he changed his first name. Most people just change their last name. So like I've had friends in the business take on their mother's maiden name, which was more ethnic sounding. Um, you know, uh, yeah, it's an interesting, it's an interesting dynamic in news. Um, Canzano, by the way, actually, the root of it means song in Italian. So cool. <laughs> just making a change to a different language. <laughs> uh, but I had somebody when I first started out, 
who was a longtime veteran in the newsroom, saying that he had wished he had changed his name, had an on-air name, nothing to do with ethnicity at all. Just, you know, he was Joe Smith, and he, he said he would have been better being Joe Jones just so his family could have some anonymity. Uh, this is somebody who was in the business for a long, long, long time, but I, you know, I, I never thought about doing that. But some people do the same thing, you know. <clears throat> Uh, I, I know uh, the great Craig Walker, uh, radio personality. Uh, I know him by his uh, his real off-air name. So, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, well, you know, one of the great things about, uh, as I let you go so you can get ready for your radio gig, uh, is not only is the Bald Face Truth a great radio show, but you and John have a wonderful foundation uh, that helps kids. And I think you guys should be very proud of, of uh, how you can extend uh, – that community that's part of his radio show to do so much help outside of just being on the radio. Oh, it's so fun, Carl. That's like the highlight of my year. Yeah. You know, this year we had our seventh camp. We weren't able to have it last year because of COVID. And the camp is called Camp Exceptional. And for a week, we, we team up people, uh, kids who are neurotypical and typical in, in physical manner with kids who have um, special needs. So, you know, the teams of, will have people with downs. They'll have people who are on all ends of the spectrum. Um, we take everyone and we do a sports camp and it's totally doable. You just have to make some adjustments along the way to adapt the sports to fit, you know, people's needs. And we had an incredible team of volunteers this year from Portland State and from Clackamas Community College, student athletes who came out. So we had these like giant 300-pound <laughs> football players bending down to tie shoelaces of, you know, five and six-year-olds. And it is um, so incredible to see, you know, we have a kid who has been coming for a couple of years to the camp who's nonverbal. And this year he said the word, thank you. Yeah, his one on one, and it was he said it in front of his mom and his grandmother and his dad, and it was incredible. So it's just it's a, it's a week of um, getting you know kids involved and athletic and sports and letting kids who have special needs participate in a way where they can try new things and um, be supported in it. And by the end of the week. The typical kids come away with compassion and patience and understanding that we're all different. We all have things that we're really good at and things that we're not so good at. And the cool thing is by the end of the week, a lot of the typical kids, they don't even know, they didn't even know that that person on their team had like an IEP or a special need. And that's really the beauty of it. And yeah. my family runs it and we have cooking competitions at my house every night. So for like a week and a half, we have dinners with like 22 people. It's really chaotic. There's a lot of socks and towels all over our house. We cram everyone into my house. And it's just a blast. It's great. Good. Well, you, you guys should be very proud of that. I know how uh, how important it is to to those kids. So, uh, Anna, it's been a pleasure to talk with you again. We've chatted many times, you know, when we worked together for nine years. But uh, I just can't say, uh, I, I know for a fact, I, my career did a lot of different things. I was never... Uh, the investigative reporter that you were and that Carrie Tomlinson was and Dan, I used to just always look over my shoulder and be so proud that I was in the same newsroom as you guys. Um, and uh, I just uh, always admire your work uh, and, and you're a pretty cool person too, Anna. So uh, it's very nice to have crossed paths with you. That means so much to me. And I learned a lot from you, you know, the times that we got to anchor together. Um, I never thought of myself as an anchor. So I always was, uh, very fortunate, I felt like, to work alongside you and all of the great anchors, um, but in particular you, because you have a very uh, good attention to detail, like you were a really good fact checker, and I remembered working with you and watching you be very diligent about reading through each of the scripts that you would read for the newscast that day, asking questions about stories, and really like prioritizing accuracy um, within the newscast. And so I appreciated that because I think it really, as a younger anchor, uh, it helped me a lot in terms of framing, okay, what is my role in this newsroom? So uh, I, I appreciated the time I got to work with you. Too. I'm, I'm glad you noticed. <laughs> <laughs>
Uh, all right, I'm gonna let you know because you got to be uh, a radio star. Please say hi to your husband for me. Uh, and uh, those kids I see on Facebook just look like they're great, well-rounded kids. So I'm guessing that you're as good a parent as you are a, a reporter. So, Anna, th thanks for your time, sweetheart. <laughs> Thank you so much. All right, bye-bye.